0: Well, hello everyone and welcome to uh, worship today. I'd like to say a happy new year to every single one of you at all of our locations. And I hope your uh, new year has gotten off to a wonderful start. Hey, I, I, I'm holding in my hand, it's too small probably for you to recognize from where you are, but I'm holding in my hand a, a quarter. It's U.S. currency, what we call a quarter, and if you are familiar with the quarter. You know it has George Washington's head on the front, the the first side of it. And the old coins used to have this just below Washington's chin, but now these words appear just behind his head on the coin. And you know what those words are, don't you? Our currency, whether it's the quarter, the dollar, our currency reads... In God we trust. That's what it says. But now, let me ask you a question today on this first weekend of this brand new glorious year 2015. Is that really true? Oh, I I know it's on the currency. I, I know that's true. But what I'm asking is how realistic is that in our country? in our communities, and even in our Christian lives? Is it really true? Is that a fair representation of what we're really doing? Now, typically, in the beginning of the new year, I plan a short series of sermons on stewardship, stewardship of time, stewardship of of influence and resources and all of those kinds of things. And the reason I do that, there's a, a number of them, One of them is because a lot of people at the beginning of the new year are trying to dig out from credit card debt that they've incurred over Christmas or earlier. And so it's a great time to reinforce some biblical principles about spending, about giving, and about saving. And here's the good thing about starting it early in the year is you have an entire year if you implement those principles, an entire year to sort of strategically see how God uses those in your life and the blessing and benefit that comes from it. But I want to dig a bit deeper this year. This year, I want you to go on a journey with me beneath the surface, and I want us to ask who is really worthy of our trust in times like this? Now, I'm certainly no economic guru, although I do love to read, and every year I, I average reading several dozen books every year. It's just something I love to do. I know that's strange for some of you. Uh, most men, for instance, never read another book. If they go to college, they never need to read another book for the rest of their life. Watch a lot of Sports Center and ESPN and all that, and I get that, okay? But women read a little bit more than guys. I just love to read Love to learn. And usually there's a number of economic books that I read in my yearly schedule. But I'm no economic guru. But many who truly are legitimate experts on the economy are saying that in America today, something has changed since 2008. You know what 2008, 2009 sort of represented. There was this huge recession in our country. Some dramatic things happened bankruptcies and bailouts, huge, enormous debts that couldn't be paid off. And since that time, here's what the experts say, there's been more uncertainty than ever about the economy. And here's why. For decades now, Americans have taken some things for granted. We've taken for granted that we would have an economy that was just soaring. We've taken for granted that unemployment in our country would be low by international standards. We've just taken for granted that the real estate market would be healthy and that it would continue to move and grow. But many are saying that those things simply can't be taken for granted anymore. Now, some of you are smiling right now, some of you who are sort of savvy with finances and you're going, but Pastor Rex, we never really could take those things for granted or at least we never should have. And you know what? You're absolutely right. But now, more than ever, we can't just assume that things are going to be stable and growing or that... One generation will always have it better financially than the previous one. That's what the experts are saying. But you know, as Christians, we should have already known that, really. Because almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote these strategic words to a young leader in Ephesus named Timothy. Here's what he said in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world and by world standards, that means all of us here today, even if you're living on a fixed income, even if you're living in assisted housing, even if you're on welfare today and it's your only means of income, you're rich by world standards. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Catch that phrase, which is so uncertain. And Americans understand that now better than we ever did. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And so I begin a brand new series today called It's a Matter of Trust. And on this particular weekend, as we kick it off, I want us to learn some sound financial principles about how to not only survive, but to thrive in an economic climate like this, or particularly if this is a season of sort of hardship or drought for you, because it raises that question, who or whom do we really trust? And I want us to learn these lessons from a man named Joseph. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 41. That's where we're gonna take most of our text today. And this is not the earthly father of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. This guy lived centuries before that. And we're going to learn today from him some important lessons about finances. Now, many of you may not be familiar with Joseph's life. Let me tell you just a bit about it. As a teenager, he had a charmed life. Everything was going well. He was kind of tall, dark, and handsome. He was his father's favorite son. But he interpreted a a, a dream that he had to his brothers. And they thought he was very pompous in doing so, angry and bitter against him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. And for years, for years, Joseph lived as a slave in Egypt. And then things got even worse. He was falsely accused... And he was put into a dungeon for two years. Boy, things were really bad for young Joseph. But then suddenly, his ship came in. Pharaoh, the leader, the powerful ruler of Egypt, had a dream. And none of his magicians, none of his court could interpret the dream. And then someone remembered, oh, there was this guy in prison I met once named Joseph... Wow, he had an amazing ability. He told me what my dream meant, and it came true. Pharaoh, maybe, maybe he could interpret your dream. And so Joseph had the opportunity to speak to Pharaoh. So let's jump in. Let's see the first principle here. God owns. God is the owner of everything. Psalm 24 reads, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The basic teaching of the Bible is that God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer and the owner of everything. So let's jump into this story in Genesis 41, starting with verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek. And they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh goes on to describe how the ugly cows actually consumed the fat, sleek ones. Boy, I tell you, when the economy gets ugly, it can get really ugly. And for some people, maybe some of you listening right now, it is no dream. It's more like a nightmare. Pharaoh goes on to describe that he saw seven heads of of grain that were consumed or kind of eaten up and devoured by seven sort of parched heads or skinny heads of grain. And Pharaoh couldn't find anyone who could give him the meaning. We look on down to verse 25, and it says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, Joseph is teaching us some truths here. But here's the main principle that overarches this entire story. As I read this story, I don't know what jumps out at you, but the sovereignty of God jumps out at me. The sovereignty of God. That God is in control and he will do what he will do. God will bring nations to power and he will shut them down. The Lord is the one who gives economic prosperity and he is certainly capable of taking it away as well. Now starting in verse 26, Joseph gives the interpretation which God revealed to him. The seven good cows, he says here to Pharaoh, are seven years. Seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one in the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. It's simply a reconfirmation. God is sovereign. Joseph is saying he's in control. He knows the end from the beginning, including the economy. And here's what I want you to see. No matter how powerful Pharaoh is, and he's the most powerful ruler in that entire region, if not in the world at this time, he could not stop the drought from coming. We cannot control what God Almighty will do. Now let's have a personal moment here. I don't know what's your season of life or your situation, but please understand that there will be ups and downs with our finances, with our personal lives, with our relationships, and so on. And here's what most people that I know do. Most people, when things go a little sour, guess what? They get mad at God. Or they'll get mad at the government and blame politicians for their failed policies and want to kick them out of office. Or they'll get mad at their boss. That blankety blank didn't give me a raise. I'm so mad. Or sometimes, sometimes people will even get really down on themselves for all the bad financial decisions that we've made. I guess I want you to take away from this That if the economy is bad, or if things are unstable, or, or we hit a season, friends, where it's not as prosperous as it once was, please understand, God's not up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, guys, that one caught me by surprise. Wow, didn't see that coming. No. God is in control. He's still on his throne. He knows what he's doing. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalm 50. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. So here's the principle. God owns, we manage, it all belongs to him. And in his word, we see it over and over again. He reminds us there will be ups and downs that will come financially. And that's why we're encouraged to always always, always put him first, both in good times and bad. Now, before we leave this and quickly move on to the second major principle about our managing God's stuff, I just want to say a word because I'm amazed at this congregation. Because you see, there are Lots of people in Grace Fellowship at all of our locations who really get this, who really get what I'm talking about right now. That's why you could give away hundreds and hundreds of Christmas boxes to needy children around the world this past season. That's why you could do that, because you understand God's the owner. And many of you, for years now, have practiced wise financial management, just right out of the Bible. And God has blessed you. And given you abundance so that you can bless so many others. And that's why uh, our church, all of our locations, we could provide for hundreds of children who would have otherwise had very little at Christmas. It, it's, just because, it's just because of you. It's just because there are a lot of people in this church who simply get what I'm talking about right now. And for years, you have practiced responsible financial management Because you understand God is the owner and everything we call ours is simply God's and he's given us the responsibility to manage it well. I just want to commend you because the truth is there are a whole lot of people in this world who just don't get that and those are often the people who do the least giving back. Can I tell you something, folks? Those people whose lives are Christ-centered are the ones who make the greatest positive impact in this world, hallelujah. And many of them I'm talking to right now. You are people who get it. You are people who are Christ-centered and you live your lives with that value in mind. I just wanna thank you for representing the Lord so well in your life. But let's quickly move on. God owns Joseph is teaching us. But secondly, we manage. Uh, Let's keep going in this story in verse 33. He goes on to say, and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Now we see some principles at work here in the way Joseph managed. And by the way, he was certainly, without a doubt, one of the most awesome managers that ever lived. This story is is legendary. But let's learn from it. What are some of the things he did that we would also be wise to practice? First, I would suggest, no matter what season you're in, but particularly if you're in a transitionary season in your personal life, I would suggest you look for some wise counsel. Now, here's the reason I say that right up front. It's been my experience in talking to hundreds of people through the years that finances are a very personal thing. Would you agree? I mean, that people don't generally want to talk about their personal financial picture. And so sometimes they have a proud attitude oh, I can handle it all on my own. All right? Or sometimes they're just too private not to show anybody the mess. that they're really in. I would urge you to take some counsel here from this lesson in the Bible. I would urge you to find someone you can trust, a financial counselor, someone who's maybe older and been down this road before, someone you really trust and just pour out your financial situation. I've done that numerous times in my life. Often it's at a transition time. When I was beginning a new job, uh, going into a new season of life, either having children or children about to go to college, or when there was a major transition in the season of life, I've often just poured out my situation to someone that I trusted and sought wise counsel. Pick their brain, but make sure that they themselves are wise and that they're practicing what they counsel. Hey, if Pharaoh needed someone to help him manage, surely there's no shame in you and I asking for some wise help. And by the way, I would just make a plug here. That's one of the reasons that I would urge you, if you've never taken it, to consider Financial Peace University. You know, this amazing class is offered at a number of our locations, but I know it's beginning at Latham on Wednesday and it it may be beginning at your location but wherever you can get into this this is a place where you can learn some basic financial wisdom. Secondly after you seek wise counsel the next step is to save up an emergency fund. Now folks in my life I've been through a number of financial seasons. Some of them I've lived in relative ease with plenty And some of them, I've lived right on the edge. And I want you to know something I've discovered. Financial margin is a beautiful thing. I'll never forget living as a seminary student in what we call student poverty. My job was delivering pizza for Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. I was a seminary student working on a Master's of Divinity degree... And I I had a 1972 Ford Maverick, a bomb of a car, that I delivered pizza in. Oh, what a dream it was. I, I can't even tell you the affectionate term I had for that car. It would offend some of you, okay? But this car, every time I got a few dollars in my bank account, it wanted to tear up. I mean, it just wasn't very pleasant. And so I literally was living like so many Americans live, kind of from hand to mouth. I mean... I would look. I had this little container on my chest of drawers in my dorm room. I would look at it every day before I would go into work and see, do I have enough money in there to buy something to eat? I mean, that's how on the edge I was living. It is no fun to live like that. Would you agree? I mean, you've got all this anxiety, this stress. What if the car tears up? Am I going to be able to continue with my job? How am I going to get it fixed? That is no fun way to live. Financial margin is a beautiful thing. But most Americans live with that kind of stress every day. God revealed to Joseph a plan that involved saving this sort of huge emergency fund. And so the people, through this forced savings plan, they would save up enough to make it through the rough years that were to come. Wise Christian financial counselors usually advise people that you ought to shoot for about three months of your salary and try to save that up for a time of emergency. Now some of you almost chuckle at that. You go, that's crazy, that's unrealistic for me. Because again, most Americans live just so much on the edge with very little financial buffer. But if you want to escape the anxiety, you need to start coming up with a way that you can put some away for a time of emergency. Proverbs 21 reads, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. The New Living Translation puts it more bluntly as it says, Fools spend whatever they get. I would urge you to work toward an emergency fund. Third, create your own financial plan. Everybody needs a plan. You can call it a strategy, you can call it a budget, you can call it a financial diet. It simply tells you where the money is going. So you've got some sense of a handle on that. And I would really urge you, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, listen, I would urge you to make giving back to God one of your first priorities. I'd put that right up front. And here's the question that you need to ask, and here's why it's a matter of trust. Do I believe that 90 cents will go further with God's blessing than a dollar will go without his blessing? Debbie and I ask that question over and over again. We have always, as a married couple, practiced tithing. I practiced tithing before that. Ever since I learned about the 10-10-80 principle from Mr. Bean way back as a brand new teenage Christian, tithing has been a part of my life. Thanks be to God. And I believe one of the reasons God's blessing on my own life has been so significant is because God has allowed me by his grace to just faithfully practice that principle. Do you really trust that God can do more with 90 cents with his blessing than you can do with a dollar without his blessing? Do I really trust that when I give my first fruits to God, that he'll meet all my needs? Emotional needs, relational needs, spiritual needs, and make up the difference in my bank account. It is truly a matter of trust. I like what the popular pastor Rick Warren says. He says, a budget is nothing more than a spending diet. It enables us to watch where the money goes and to control how it's used. Well, Joseph continues his speech to Pharaoh here in verse 35. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt. So that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. I would urge you to get a plan that you can begin to practice. Now, again, through the years, as I've talked to so many people about getting a plan of their own, the number one reason people give to me for not having a plan and certainly not giving back to God, I'll bet you can guess what it is, what the number one excuse is. They say, I'm too far in debt, right? That's the number one reason given. That's the excuse. No wonder the wisest man Solomon warned in Proverbs twenty-two: "The borrower is a servant to the lender." Again, I cannot urge you more strongly: if that's your situation and you're feeling the the, the pressure and the stranglehold of that, listen, listen. Be gracious with yourself. Don't beat yourself up. But it's it's really time you got a plan to get out of that mess. Go to financial peace. Seek out some of our counselors here at church where you can sit down with them and they can help you create a reasonable budget that will work for your situation. And that brings us to the next principle. Stay with the plan you've made. Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole kingdom. That was a very good call. And Joseph did not disappoint. He became a great leader, and one of the reasons he was so effective, are you listening, is that he simply did what he said he was going to do. This isn't rocket science. Joseph had a basic plan, and he stuck with the plan. Look at verse 47. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully, Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Now, I'll tell you what sinks a lot of people. They're so tempted to get away from the plan. Don't you know that during these seven years of abundance, especially toward the last one or two of those years when the grain was just piling up, don't you know Joseph was tempted to take some of that wealth and just spend it on his own wants or desires? But he didn't. He stuck with the plan. Let's have a moment of candor here. For most of us, the problem is not determining a plan. Can we just be real honest? Plans are actually pretty simple. That's not the challenge. The challenge is sticking with the plan, right? Because it gets at your ego a lot of times. When your friends, the crew, the gang wants to go out to Cheesecake Factory and all you can honestly afford if you're going to stick with the plan is McDonald's. Oh, it's tough. It's tough to stick with the plan, isn't it? When you're drawn to the BMW, the new one. (laughs) But honestly, all you can really afford is the used VW. Oh, it's so painful to stick with the plan. But if you will be faithful with that and follow through, God will honor your discipline. He'll honor your generosity. When Debbie and I got married, and by the way, this year we're going to be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, and I am so stoked about that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I know you're clapping for Debbie, right? You're clapping going, hang in there, girl. Way to go. You need a medal for living with that guy for 25 years, right? And you should, okay? But I'm really excited. It's our 25th wedding anniversary this year and we're going to celebrate and have a great, great time. But you know what? Early on, again, I'm a reader. Boy, it gets you in trouble when you read. Let me tell you. you. If you want your life to change, just start reading some good books. And way back, before we got married, I was reading books by this guy named Larry Burkett. Great Christian financial counselor. Very popular, very well known back then. Not so much, uh, his books are not so much known now. And I read uh, from Larry Burkett that, you know what, if you're just getting started out and you're you're trying to stay out of debt. You know, so many young married couples go into debt. Maybe you can try this thing called the envelope system. And so Debbie and I did. Never done this before brand new, newlyweds. And so Deb starts writing on all these envelopes, and we wrote categories like this. Food, all right? Clothes, hair, all right? Entertainment, gifts, vacations, car, gas and oil, clothing, things like that. Now, again, Tithing was already a done deal. We were already going to do that. And our apartment at first and later our home mortgage, that was a done deal. We were going to take care of that. But these are all things that we had more discretion on in our value system. And so you know what we did? The measly bit of money that it was, we put that at the start of every month in that envelope. And guess what? If we wanted to go see that wonderful new movie that everybody was raving about, and we looked in the entertainment envelope, ooh, there's only seven bucks in there. What? We just made up our own fun. We just stayed home. We we tried to find a way just to have fun because it wasn't in there. We were tenacious, by God's grace, we were just dogged about this. And sometimes she was weak and I was the strong one, and sometimes I was weak and she was the strong one. But as a young married couple, we just helped one another stick with the plan. And by God's grace, by God's amazing grace, we were able to live that way. We were able to live kind of like no one else we knew was living And and, and God eventually hit a tipping point where the blessing of that begins to come back to you. Listen, no matter what your age, I urge you to live that way. If you need to drive the bomb car, drive the bomb car. I kind of took a perverse pride in driving bomb cars. Who cares? Your identity's not bound up in your car. Get over that. You're bigger than that. You're more than that. Don't let your identity be defined by the size of your house or the clothes that you wear or the car that you drive. That's foolishness. Live above that craziness. Get a plan and then live with the plan. There's so much joy that comes when you stick with your plan. Now here's why I get so passionate about this, folks. Because when you don't do that, and you go down a bad road, it's really hard to dig out. Ron Blue, I love the way he put it. Ron Blue said, getting into debt is as easy as getting down an ice-covered mountain. Getting out of debt is just as difficult as climbing back up that same mountain. And he's absolutely right. I'm so encouraged about you. I know you can do it. I know you can live these principles. But it is going to require some character development and some discipline on the part of so, so many. You can do it by God's grace. There's one other passage here. We read in verse 53 that the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. Why? Because he stuck with the plan. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. Oh. Pharaoh trusted this manager, this amazing leader, Joseph. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses, sold the grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Joseph firmly believed that God owns and we manage. Now, here's what I'm concerned about right now when everybody listening. I believe right now some of you are sitting right there at all of our locations and here's what you're feeling. You're feeling feeling really bad. Boy, I don't want that. You're feeling really, really lousy about the poor financial decisions perhaps you've made. You're feeling bad that you don't have a plan or that you tried a plan but you didn't stick with the plan. Listen, rather than beating yourself up, be, be gracious with yourself but I do want to challenge you. I do want to challenge you with these two super quick takeaways as we wrap up today and finish. Two takeaways. Don't beat yourself up, but take this challenge with you and let it ring in your ears as you go home. First of all, what we can learn from Joseph is so powerful is that Joseph was always putting his master's interest first. It's incredible. Throughout his life, look at his story. Whoever his master was, he always was thinking of their interests and thinking of representing them well. That is a great lesson for Christians to do. Notice how the people responded to Joseph's leadership in verse 25. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. You go, dude save their lives, but they've got this 20% tax over their head. You know what? Even though that seems so huge, perhaps to our ears, they knew that Joseph was actually, in the long run, being gracious. He ended up giving their land back to them, still had a sizable tax, but the bottom line was they knew that he had saved the entire nation from starvation. He was looking to represent his master well. For Christians, I hope you can make the translation to your own life. Our whole goal in life should be to please the Lord and to represent him well. One final lesson. Joseph was always giving God the glory. Remember I told you Joseph had a hard road early on because... well after his charmed life as a teenager growing up, he then had some horrible years where he was literally in slavery. And then he was in a dungeon for two years. And remember back when Pharaoh had that initial dream and he looked for someone to interpret? This is really cool. Watch this. He finds out about Joseph. Joseph has now got his moment to shine, baby. Joseph's PR agent is proud, he knows Joseph is going to kill this. He knows he's going to knock the ball out of the park when he talks to Pharaoh because Joseph is so wise. And Pharaoh comes and he says here in chapter 41, verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that you, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And his PR agent is going, yeah, man, tell him you're the guy. Joseph, here's your moment, go for it. Grab some glory, toot your own horn, promote yourself. Joseph, this is your moment in the sun, baby. Don't blow this one. And notice Joseph's brilliant response to Pharaoh. I cannot do it. What? Joseph, don't you know about self-promotion? Don't you know that if it's to be, it's up to me? Don't you know, dude, that it's all about you? You're the guy. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Listen, some of you feel in the beginning of this new year like you're in a perfect storm. Relationally, some things have gone rough for you. Financially, you're feeling some pressure. Spiritually, you may feel a little vacuous and empty. Emotionally, perhaps you feel flat or even depressed. Can I tell you your answer as you go into this new year? There it is. I can't, but God can't. That's Joseph's brilliant attitude. That's the attitude that allowed him to always represent his master well and always bring glory to God. I can't, but God can. I cannot on my own endure a spiritual drought or a financial famine. I can't, but God can. And he promises that when we put him first, he will come alongside of you and he will provide everything that you need. What a great way to start the new year. Father, would you help us as a church family and as individuals to catch this lesson from Joseph's life, I can't, but God can't, and help us to go into this new year trusting you to be strong on our behalf and to show yourself in all of your glory and wonder, I pray, O oh God, that you would become the one that we trust. More than just a slogan on a coin, you would be the one in whom we truly trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. As we continue to worship today, I, I'm just gonna invite our ushers to come. Our amazing team is gonna lead us for a few minutes longer together. It's so exciting to begin a new year, and I'm so glad you've been here today, and let's continue in worship.